Assalamu alaikum and hello. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast, where we discuss psychology, mental health, spirituality, and Islam. In this episode, we're joined by the immensely talented Jamila Hakmoon as we talk about the cost of living crisis, men's mental health, and her lived experience of anxiety and depression. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast, where today we're joined by Sister Jamila Hekmoon, who is a research fellow at the Wolf Institute in Cambridge. Jamila, salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It is a pleasure to have you on. Can you begin by introducing yourself to our viewers and just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I, as you said, I'm a research fellow at the Wolf Institute. I work on our Faith in Mental Health project with a focus on Muslim mental health. Um, I'm currently writing up my PhD on Muslim men's mental health. Um, and I'm a former board trustee at the Muslim Youth Helpline. And I used to volunteer for Inspirited Minds. Uh, I'm also chair of the Muslim Mental Health Alliance, which is a network of organizations aiming to collaborate um, on mental health within the sector um, and I'm also a board member at the Muslim Council of Wales. Wow subhanallah subhanallah again like I say it's an honor to have you on I think we were just you know speaking before and saying that we have met through IM way back when in 2017 um, and just you know reflecting back on that time or all, all the way to now how, how do you feel did you, did you think that you'd be able to get like all this experience under your belt? Um, 27, or, so I joined IM in 2016 and I think 2017 I was just finishing up my master's and I really didn't know what to do. I was kind of stuck because I went straight from my undergrad to my master's. Um, I was, yeah, a bit like, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> um, and I found it difficult to, you know, find a job and find my footing so I really didn't think that I'd be yeah where I am now with this much experience and having done so much but alhamdulillah 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 and you mentioned being a board member all these really you know um, amazing organizations the Muslim Youth Helpline um, and Muslim Council of Wales what's kind of your driving force your inspiration you know behind taking up these positions that's a good question um i've always wanted to do something where i help people because i've always wanted to make a difference and particularly when doing or volunteering in mental health it's because of what i experienced and while i had a positive experience in getting help when i finally kind of realized that i had anxiety and depression um it's all that stuff before that where I I didn't have support with my mental health because I don't think, you know, when I was 15, mental health wasn't spoken about really. It wasn't a thing almost. Um, and now, you know, 14 years later, it is. And I don't want people to have negative experience. I mean, people, you know, 
probably will i'm rambling i know but that's kind of the general thing and also i've always been quite a big nerd even from school i used to stay um sorry my hair got caught on my watch uh i used to stay after school for ages and just like help out the teachers and i just always wanted to help and help yeah just help i guess which sounds really weird and nerdy but oh well. <laughs> It sounds very inspiring because I know a lot of people who enter this um, industry, they're um, or kind of this sector, let's say, they're doing it because they want to help people, you know, and that's, I think that comes from a very compassionate place. Um, so I think that was one thing that um, when I first started out and, and what led me to my first kind of thing within mental health, my first kind of role was within Spirited Minds and part of the reason why I got involved was I was thinking okay well I am an expert in my own anxiety my own depression but I'm not an expert in anxiety or depression I wouldn't even call myself an expert now um and I don't but I wanted to I wanted to learn and I wanted to make sure that if I was helping people then I was well equipped to do so and that's very important, right? Like trying to make sure that you're you're in a position where you're informed to help people. So I think mental health at the moment is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and organizations who perhaps are not experts in mental health or have any experience um, dealing with mental health are now offering support, offering guidance and awareness without having appropriate training. And I think it can be quite dangerous then um, because this is people's well-being that's at risk yeah that's that's very important and and i'm happy that you share that because it is it mental health is the buzzword of this you know decade you know and it is yeah. very easy to to get it wrong or to see a therapist that who's not really helping you you know or maybe does not have the right kind of qualifications so it, you're very right it's very important to to be able to not only have the like the right systems yeah. in place but also just be able to help from an informed perspective from a trained perspective yeah and i think you know as a community and i think generally as well not only the muslim community but the wider community do we know how to find out if someone is legitimate do we know what the bacp is do we know how if a counselor we see is registered with them or registered with any other professional body um mm you know do we know how to find an organization on the charity commission or company's house so you can see their records i mean i'm sounding a bit like a uh maybe i'm speaking from my experience as a trustee but i think those kind of things are important because they help instill trust um in an individual and you, with more information you're more empowered to make better choices for you and your mental health Definitely, definitely. But I want to kind of come back to your um, your journey with anxiety and depression. I feel like we can talk about this for ages. Um, so you mentioned yes. your you mentioned your experiences. Um, can you share with us kind of your journey and your symptoms and what exactly you experienced? Yeah. So um, I always remember being quite an anxious child. Um, like I would get really like almost to the point of shaking if I thought I was going to be late for school, for example. That's just an example that kind of sticks to the forefront of my mind. But I would always be anxious. I'd always 
and and not know how to deal with it and not know I I I don't think then I had the words to explain it so I wasn't going to seek help um and I think you know at that time when you're a teenager a lot of stuff is kind of changing and you there's that stereotype isn't there of a moody teenager and I kind of was one um but and I didn't notice that it was actually going a lot deeper than that so it really start kind of came to a forefront in my year abroad at uni so that was my second year and I really struggled um and I woke up one day and I lived above a pharmacy so I went down to the pharmacy because my heart was racing I didn't know what was wrong with me so they took my heart rate and it was 144 beats a minute now it doesn't even get that high when I'm exercising my resting heart rate is like 60 so I knew something was wrong and the pharmacist was like go to the hospital so I went I was put in the ICU overnight um, and they basically told me it was stress. And so I must have had a panic attack and I didn't realize it then because, again, I didn't know the words. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, So I kind of when I got back to the UK, um, I kind of ignored it. I think I had a session of counseling or a few sessions, um, but then halfway through, it kind of it got cut because the organization had its funding cut so I literally had an email saying you're not having counseling anymore basically um and then uh it was about six so that was in my third year so about six months later in my fourth year so my second year was my year abroad um so in my fourth year about Christmas time uh or just before I had another panic attack and went to speak to a GP um, and then I more so had the words because a couple of my friends had um, experiences of anxiety and they kind of helped me um, and you know helped me have the words to say to my GP what I'd been going through. I got diagnosed with um, anxiety and depression, um, I got put on sertraline I still take sertraline to this day. I think there needs to be a reduced stigma um, around medication for mental health. I think that's something that people are afraid of. And I always say it's not one size fits all. Just because medication works for someone doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Just because um, counselling works for someone um, doesn't mean that's going to work for you long term. So, you know, um, I've found it really helpful to be on sertraline I found counseling helpful when I've had counseling um but this is something that works for me and it was something that I kind of had to come to terms with because my GP kind of told me you know it won't be easy to come off of and you're likely to be on this medication for a long time and that was definitely something I had to come to terms terms with like mentally thinking am I okay with that and then I kind of realized that was my internalized stigma around what I thought about medication and this was you know end of 2015 so again the the amount that we've come in the last you know seven eight years in terms of reducing stigma around mental health I think is really great so back then I was a bit apprehensive but I went and spoke to my imam actually and he was very kind of supportive very kind of you know do what you need to do 
um, and it doesn't make you less of a Muslim because you need, you know, mental health medication. So he was very supportive. And um, looking online after that, I realized that a lot of other Muslims didn't have the same positive experiences that I did. Um, so I think I started writing like a blog and then I came across Talat, shout out Talat from Inspirited Minds. Um, and yeah, he was just telling me about Inspirited Minds and then I joined as a writer and then, yeah, everything started from there. Wow. And I feel like for you, it kind of came full circle, but you've mentioned so many important things along the way. Um, and I, I just want to unpack a little bit of it, if, if that's okay. I want to oh, yeah. start with um, the symptoms of a panic attack, because I realize that our viewers probably don't even know what those symptoms are. Yeah, I thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, for me, I just... My, it was my heart that was the main thing beating really fast and I was really kind of I felt really confused and I really wasn't sure what was wrong with me I felt panicky basically and and people have described it to similar feeling to a heart attack and I just I didn't know what was wrong with me I following the panic attack as well my anxiety seemed to get worse. I remember not wanting to go outside. I remember not being able to make it like to the end of the street. And my friends kind of being like, you know, not really understanding because that was kind of the first, we didn't really know anyone who had, was experiencing anxiety that, to that effect at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah, and no, it, no, it, it makes look, sense. Looking back, it's kind of a blur. Like I can remember in patches, but it it was just yeah, a blur because I was I was I was kind of out of it. Like it felt really surreal, almost like an out of body experience. Um, yeah, and and I guess that must have like put you in such a state that you you just you needed to you know, get some help. You needed to make sure that there was some kind of support for you. And as you mentioned, you were lucky enough to have you um, know, those positive experiences. Yeah, so the the um, time between my panic attack in Jordan and actually going to the doctor and getting support was about two years because it was halfway through my second year and then halfway through my fourth year. So it took mm -hmm. two years almost for me to realize that I needed support. And um, because after my panic attack, I it, it happened in, I think, late October, early November. So I flew back to the UK until January. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was kind of put down to me being in a foreign country. You know, I was in my second year, I think, um, I was like 19, 20. So it was kind of put down to that. Um, so I thought, oh, if I come back to the UK, everything will be fine. And, you know, um, in January, I kind of knew that I was finishing my year abroad in like three months. So I kind of had that end date. So it helped a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then in my third year, when I was, um, when I was back and kind of comfortable, I was still getting symptoms and they were becoming more frequent. And I was having 
trouble with my mood as well having experiences very low mood crying and things were just getting worse and then it was finally in my fourth year so like 2015 the start of my fourth year that I got some help that sounds like quite a journey um are you okay to share what kind of stopped you from from getting that help for two years again I just don't think I had the words I think I just didn't know what was wrong and I think I thought it was like a blip I thought it would be fine I thought it was just the stressful situations um that were happening around me I thought those were the reasons mm. of why I was struggling with my mental health and then once the situations changed um and things got um and, and I was like getting more comfortable I was still experiencing issues with my mental health and how did you kind of manage to you know juggle the stress of university and then you know finding out that you've experienced anxiety or you're experiencing anxiety and depression um my lecturers were absolutely brilliant um they really helped me in things like giving me extra time when i needed it in my exams they were really supportive um the wait list for counseling for uni was quite a while um but they really helped my lecturers in terms of giving me someone to talk to when i needed it my friends were really supportive um so yeah i really i really was lucky there subhanallah and um and i think you did mention before the importance of you know having those those positive experiences having those that support network um do you think we have that support network in in our communities it's a good question um <laughs> i think it's improving i think it's definitely differs from person to person you know some people have networks that understand mental health um and some people don't i think it's kind of the same as the wider community i'm just kind of remembering back to um to when i was first diagnosed and i remember one of my friends who will not be named but when i said oh i have i've been diagnosed with anxiety and depression and he was like you don't look like you're depressed and i was like um that's not right i think there yeah. was a lack of understanding and I, i will divulge that this person was a medical student so wow. this lack of understanding that was then is so different to what it is now mm. um yeah there's a massive difference um i think from when i was yeah when i was first diagnosed to, to now and i i'm speaking like you know that was hundreds of years ago it was eight years ago so i think we've come definitely come a long way and i think that things like the pandemic have brought mental health to the forefront i think you couldn't help but to experience periods of low mood and anxiety during the pandemic and therefore people can perhaps then relate more to people who experience um long term anxiety and depression even if it's only a little bit um but yeah you know just despite that i had an excellent support network that friend was very supportive i think that just shows that you know 
anxiety and depression don't have a particular look. I'm very, um, especially at uni, I was very extroverted. Um, and I think that there's that misconception as if you appear extroverted, if you appear like happy and jolly all the time, then you're not struggling within, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean, because I experienced my first panic attack during my A-levels, and I was the most, I, I would say the most, if not second or third most, I was one of the most extroverted person in my year. Um, and like, similar to you, I didn't have any words for that. I thought there was something severely wrong with me, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I didn't know what, how to explain it, as if to, the only thing I could say was something's really wrong and I don't know what it is. And yeah. so I don't know how to fix it, you know? And I was lucky enough to have my mom who didn't really understand a lot about mental health, but she, she knew at that time I didn't need any, you know, any of that thing. Oh, but you don't look like, or, you know, um, you're going to be okay and stuff like that. She, she just, she just gave me that comfort that I needed and saying, okay, it's okay. Let's let's go through it one moment at a time, one second at a time, and we'll we'll get there, you know. And it's so important. It's That's so important. Cool. Yeah, it's so important yeah. to have that. Just someone to say what you're experiencing is valid, and I'm here with you no matter yeah. what, you know. Yeah, I agree. That was definitely important. Definitely. But let's go back to the writing. So you met Talat and, you know, that's how you you kind of started writing for Inspirited Minds. But you are an avid writer, you know. So why don't you tell us a little bit about I don't know. <laughs> I would say you are. You're doing I, a PhD. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if my supervisors would agree, but, you know. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> met Talat started writing blogs for Inspirited Minds. Um, and Which are a huge hit, by the way. We still get comments on some of those articles. <laughs> I think one of them do. got like the me the most uh, read blog of the year when I was there. I was like, yes, uh, I was very proud of that one. Alhamdulillah. Um, but yeah, and then in 2018, I got approached um, to, or was it the end of 2017? One of those years, I got approached to write a book chapter um, in a book called It's Not About the Burqa. It's a collection of different essays um, by Muslim women about different topics. So like about the hijab, um, one's about uh, Muslim women in history. So lots of different topics. Um, and mine was about my experiences of mental health and mental health within the Muslim community. And that was around the same time I was actually an intern for Muslim Youth Helpline when I was uh, writing that. Um, I was writing their research report on uh, Muslim youth. It was a big like study of um, over a thousand young British Muslims that can be found online. Um, so yeah, I was writing this book chapter at a similar time and it was quite cathartic writing my own experiences down, but also I kind of had to, um, wrestle with myself thinking whatever I put in this book that information is no longer mine that is shared with everyone my innermost thoughts and feelings I speak in the book about you know having suicidal feelings that is no longer private information and I had to weigh up my 
then lack of privacy with okay what can my book do to help people and after it had published I remember getting one tweet in particular saying that I have no idea how much my words helped someone and I thought right that was worth it um and it's definitely something that as someone who you know I'm a researcher, an academic, I I do all this work with mental health, but I've also got lived experience. It's kind of hard to balance that sometimes. So you kind of have to think internally, this is how much I'm going to give away. Mm. This is what I think will help people. Um, And the rest, that's mine. I'm keeping that for myself. Um, And I think that's important apologies if I'm going off on a tangent but I think you know anyone who discusses their mental health you kind of have to have that line as well where you think this is what's going to help people if I share more am I sharing that because it's a cathartic relief for me or am I sharing that because I think other people will find it useful and helpful so it's kind of it was it took some time to think about what those boundaries were going to be but alhamdulillah you know I have them in my head and I know you know how much I how much I will say and how much I won't say if that makes sense Mm. no it definitely does and I was just about to say that I I think we have to think about that boundary you know especially because at some point we've all experienced problems with our mental we've all struggled you know yeah and when it comes to sharing we have that liberty we can choose how much we want to divulge and how much we want to keep in and I think you know as you were talking I was just thinking when it comes to supporting others I think we need to keep that in mind as well in that you know don't demand for information ask for it right I think there's there's a huge difference because especially with the if you're closely related to someone or if you're like an auntie you know you'll just ask well why are you feeling like that you know something like that so there's Mm -hmm. there's a difference between having that demanding tone when you're trying to get someone's personal experience you're trying to understand and just being very gentle about it and allowing that person to make that decision of how much they're okay to share or if they're not okay to share you know, not not being in a position where, oh my God, I have to say something even though I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, it is difficult. And at that time, 2019 is when the book came out. I was writing it in 2018. There wasn't really many people that I knew of that were openly speaking about their mental health struggles so publicly, especially in the Muslim community. So I kind of felt like a little bit like almost like I was the I'm sure I wasn't the first person to do it, but it felt like like I was, you know, breaking down a little bit of a barrier. So mm-hmm. that I was, you know, proud of, alhamdulillah. But um yeah, there's always things that I will keep to myself and, you know, only share with those closest around me. As you should, as you should. Um, but where can people find this book right now? Uh, it's at all good books, bookstores, bookshops. Um, it's on Amazon. It's on um, Foils. It's, yeah, 
most places, I believe. It's called It's Not About the Burqa. Um, highly recommend, 10 out of 10. Definitely, definitely. Um, I will definitely be getting a copy for myself. I didn't know you had written um, a chapter in there, but I will definitely be getting a copy for myself. Um, SubhanAllah. And I think more people do, you know, if they feel comfortable, share their experiences. Because for me, it personally, I think it gives you a boost to be understood to feel like you are not alone yeah. in experiencing what you're experiencing especially if you can see a fellow you know muslim um who is going through something similar and sharing that so it, i think it's it's very inspiring yeah thank you but let's move on to the cost of living crisis which is what we wanted to discuss um for this episode so we wanted to talk a little bit about that because it really has a huge impact on people's mental health um so and i know this is something that you're very passionate about so i will give you the floor tell us about the cost of living crisis and mental health <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's it's something that i think we think about the cost of living and mental health sometimes as being separate from each other and not perhaps something that kind of overlaps and and links together but you know even at the at kind of more basic levels that things are rising so much that people you know cannot afford the basics they cannot afford um especially in the winter it was choosing between heating and eating um people cannot afford to buy nutritious food for them for their children and it's something i think that um definitely has a an effect on people's mental health because if you're struggling day to day the only thing on your mind is money worries and how am I going to afford this how am I going to pay for that you feel like there's no way out and oftentimes you don't know if there's going to be a way out because all we see in the news is rising costs of this rising costs of that rents going up bills going up I think you know it has an effect and even people who aren't living um or who aren't struggling you know to feed themselves they're still making difficult choices um because of the cost of living you know cutting out things they like you keep hearing on the radio with some um mp saying well if people just stopped buying netflix they'll be able to afford xyz and i think okay so what am i supposed to do you want me to sit at home in the cold with nothing to watch because I can't afford my electric bill and you've told me not to have a Netflix subscription. I can't afford to eat. I can't afford to go outside because anywhere I go costs money. Like there seems to be a, like we're being pushed almost into living miserable lives through no fault of our own. And it's, it feels sometimes like there's no way out. I mean, alert, at least we're coming to summer and we won't have to put our heating on. But it's just, yeah, it's getting to a point where people are getting desperate and it it's having an effect on people's mental health because how can it not? Mm. And one thing that I think... Um, is really important to talk about is the fact that it costs more to be poor have you ever come across this idea i actually haven't 
So there's something called um, the boots theory that I think was, it came up with in like the early 1900s. And the idea is that um, if you, you need to buy a pair of boots, right? But maybe you're poor and or poorer. This was the idea. You can only afford a pair of boots that are $10. But the $10 boots, you're going to have to replace them every few months or every year because they're not of good quality. But that's all you can afford. Someone wealthier can afford perhaps to get one pair of, you know, $90 boots. Um, I'm saying dollars because I think this was developed uh, in America. Um, you can afford the ninety pet, the ninety dollar pet. That's going to last you years and years and years and years, which means you're not replacing it as much as the poorer person. Which means the poorer person is spending more on, you know, on boots. But you can apply it to anything of quality that you need. So you know, a mattress, for example, a boots, even now, a coat, a winter coat. You're buying more because you can't afford better quality because you know you can afford a small amount every year but you don't have enough money coming in to be able to have to spend on a large payment and I also see it with um shops so if you look at you know sometimes the poorer areas of a city um the local shops, it might be a co-op, it might be a Tesco Express, it might be a Sainsbury's local. If you go into those shops, I think Witch did a study um, and I think they they looked in about 40 or 50 of these smaller shops and the only, uh, I think only one shop sold one thing from their like basics or essentials range. Go and uh, see the study, it's by uh, Witch, the consumer group. And it got me thinking, okay, so these are, people who are living in an area where maybe they don't have access to a car maybe you know um they don't have much much income and the only shop then is a tesco express or a sainsbury's where the prices are extortionate and they don't have any choice but to shop there mm. and you just got me thinking it costs more to be poor and then obviously the link to mental health is that you know if you're constantly worrying and you've got anxiety about money it really hinders you in your day-to-day -day living because you can't think of anything else I know it's it's a thing um payday anxiety people get really anxious I think it's a phenomenon around payday because often you've kind of stretched your budget and you know ha 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 we can only eat noodles for the last week over payday before payday people sometimes make jokes about it but now it's becoming more and more serious where people really struggle in those last few days and they think oh my god I hope I get paid I hope I get paid if I don't what am I going to do because I've only got you know a couple of pounds to make things work I can only eat this or that and having your brain so consumed with money worries is exhausting Sorry, I feel like I've just ranted for like five minutes, but I hope that was useful. No, no, it, it definitely was. And that's that's so interesting. So I haven't come across the theory, but I do agree with you in that it is definitely more costly to be poor in, you know, in the society we have today. And that, that kind of juxtaposition is just, it gives a lot for consideration because, mm -hmm. um, you know, according to Islam, we have to 
create a balanced society, but actually we're moving further and further from a balanced society. And that's, Mm. and you know, when you're working from a position of worry, of anxiety, especially about money, um, you know, if you're the head of the family, if you're a single mother, if you're, you know, someone who's been hung out to dry by your family, for example, which there's so many cases of that in the Muslim community, you have to worry not only about how you're going to make it by financially, you also have to worry about how you're going to look after your family if you have children, you know, and that's, that's kind of adding to it. And I feel like just, just as you were talking, it's the thought that came to my mind was it's so difficult already to live, to survive in the world. And then you have, you know, these, these extra things and, Muslims definitely get the short end of the stick, especially, you know, in in a country like Britain. Um, And it's it's not something that we can undermine or kind of shove under the carpet, you know? And I think in the... um, I don't know about the 2021 census, but the 2011 census was saying how I think um, like 40% of Muslims lived in the... um, most poor boroughs in the UK um I know that there was an increase in Muslims going to food banks especially during Ramadan this year um you know charities like the National Zakar Foundation um have seen an uh, an increase in Muslims looking for or asking for zakah. I think it's something that you know and and it kind of all links in how muslims um are less likely to get jobs due to our names for example and it kind of just perpetuates and goes in a cycle um but i would say you know there are if you are in debt or you need help there's step change which is the uk's debt charity um there's um uh the uh, money saving experts that's martin lewis he's like my favorite person he does such great work um and also national zakar foundation you know zakar is a right for muslims if you need it you shouldn't be ashamed to access it you shouldn't be ashamed to go and um to go and get support if you need it i it's a really important organization and their aim and their focus is on keeping zakar local where possible um and i think sometimes we don't always remember that there are muslims suffering in the uk and that's quite it's 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 almost quite sad but alhamdulillah for for nzf existing um but yeah it's got to a point where people can't cut anymore like like we were saying about netflix and things like that like are you supposed to cut every ounce of joy out of your life like you know people say oh cut back budget when you're literally you know budgeting down to the pound or the penny what else are you supposed to cut out that's when people are cutting out food that's when people you know aren't switching on their heating aren't taking showers and you know stuff like that really starts to affect you mentally if you can't even do a basic thing which is have a shower or have a bath it's you know it has such a negative effect on your well-being. Definitely. And, you know, research has also found that there's a higher rate of suicide in minority communities, you know, especially um, those with low incomes. So it is a thing, 
you know it's it's real it's here and we can't really avoid it i know um in in especially in ethnic minority communities we have this habit of shoving everything under the carpet but you cannot shove this under the carpet you know these are our brothers and sisters and and there there is a way that we can come together if not you know to to take away someone's financial burden we can at least provide other forms of support there's always something that we can do but i think we should do something i think we should you know try and stand up make our voices heard i think that's another area where we're so poor at we you know when it comes to first of all as you mentioned when it comes to you know admitting that you need that financial help we have a problem and then when it comes to actually standing up and and you know speaking out against what you what you're seeing is unjust that's also a problem so it's like what what are you going to do just just sit there with your hand with your hands on your head and just experience it yeah i think it's you know sometimes just a a pride thing you don't want to admit to people you don't want people finding out and that's something sometimes um that we see with people being reluctant to get um support for their mental health there's kind of a similar thing like you're worried people are going to find out that it's the stigma mm-hmm. um and you know you have to think especially you know if you want if you need to go and um receive zakat it's your right that's what it's there for it's you know people have hard times it's nothing to be ashamed of it's not shameful you know especially in this situation that we're in now no one's going to blame you for for struggling it's a difficult time it really is and i think there's um there's also something to be said about being vulnerable um a lot of people don't like being put in that situation where they are vulnerable or they are going to be seen as weak you know and and you're absolutely yeah. right i think that's something that's also kind of internalized when people need to seek help for their mental health when people need to see a doctor for their physical health problems when when yeah. when you need to go and seek help and say you know what i am struggling i'm not in a good position there's there's a hindrance you know yeah um but i think in terms of because we've spoken about a lot of heavy things do you see hope do you think that there are you know things that we can do to to come together to kind of mitigate what's happening with the cost of living crisis i think there is um i think if you are in a position where you're able to give zakah give your zakah if you're in a position to um you know be able to give food to the food bank you know we see in supermarkets they've always got that box um for the food bank so if that's something that you're able to do then do that it's just finding little ways where we can help you know if you um think someone's struggling if they won't accept money from you maybe you can um make them a dinner and bring that over um it's just little things and yeah the little things that you can do to to just help someone and brighten their day and and also um if you know if it's one of your friends or family that's struggling tell them about the different organizations and help that is out there um 
step change, you know, for debt. If people are in debt, it can help you uh, manage your debt. Money saving experts really good. As I said, NZF's really good. You know, I think um, similar to mental health resources, sometimes we don't know what is out there to help us. Definitely. And I do want to mention here that Inspirited Minds does provide low cost counselling um, and free counselling. If you cannot afford it, if you cannot afford counselling, we do provide it for free. So there are resources out there. You can definitely, you know, try to reach out to them. It's very easy. It's not difficult at all. Um, all you need is Google nowadays you know to reach anywhere um yeah. so please do and if you see someone else struggling encourage them to as well you might be changing the course of someone's life and that can be very yeah. rewarding subhanallah um but moving on to your phd i want to talk about men's mental health right now because what is going on there you know, men are usually like the providers in the family, as I mentioned, you know, so there's there's a lot of pressure already on men and they they must be feeling this cost of living crisis even more. But what what have you found? Tell us. Yeah, I'm very sorry. I pull a face every time anyone says PhD. <laughs> I think PhD students will understand. Um, but men's mental health, uh, very important issue very understudied um men are usually quite underrepresented in health studies and muslim men especially um so i was kind of looking at the relationship between faith mental health and ideas of masculinity um and also culture where culture might come into that so wow. you're right um men kind of are pressed let me reword this let me make sure i've got the right words men often feel pressured into these set masculine roles whether that's um whether that's the feelings of being like the financial provider whether that's in terms of their emotion and being like really stoic and um i think there is a difference then between what a man's a Muslim man's culture is telling them and then what the examples are from Islam. So I think within cultures, and this is what I've found kind of in a general sense, um, is that emphasis on providing, is that emphasis on, you know, not showing any emotions and especially the the providing is getting more difficult in a cost of living crisis that pressure is really increasing um and then coupling that with the expectations that you don't tell anyone what's wrong you don't kind of share what you're feeling it's you know a real struggle for some muslim men um and you know we've seen we know that the general um suicide rates in men is 75% whereas women is 25% and um, so while there's no way of us knowing whether um, what it is for Muslim men because death certificates don't uh, record religion in the US um, I think there was a study last year or the year before that found Muslims were um, more at risk of suicide don't quote me on that exactly but um if you look it up it was i think done by 
Dr. Rania Awad um, from the US. Um, so I think it's an issue. And um, through my work, I'm trying to, or I have provided recommendations for uh, mental health organizations, both secular and Muslim, um, for government on how to improve things for Muslim men. Wow, subhanAllah. That's, you know, it, it is a very growing area of concern, even at IM, um, you know, I've, I've been with them for, for the last couple of years, and it is a growing area. We have more and more men who are, you know, anonymously reaching out and just, you know, struggling. They're just struggling. Yeah. And I think you're right in the sense of culture does play a role very separately to religion. Like religion does play a role, but culture plays an even bigger role. And I think um, because my sister just did a study on a very separate topic on domestic abuse, but we found that cultural roles of gender kind of perpetrate a lot of these toxic behaviors and I don't know, I find it a very interesting topic. I don't know what you think about that. Have you come across that in your study as well? I think it's the issue is when culture and religion are blurred, when things are taken from the culture and that's masquerading as religion when it's not. And people perhaps not understanding the differences and not knowing the differences, not being taught the differences. I think that's where um, some of the issues are. And I think as well, um, if you look at counts, Muslim counsellors in the UK, the majority of them are women. Mm. And I think um, that's one thing that perhaps would help more Muslim men seek support is having Muslim men as counsellors, as psychotherapists, um, being visible so they feel more comfortable. I think, you know, um, oftentimes you want to speak to someone who's like yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We've noticed that as well. Um, and that's why we've tried even really hard on the podcast to try and reach out to male counsellors um, and psychotherapists. And we yeah. did, we have a couple of episodes, you know, kind of giving that perspective, which I think is very important. But then also we've seen kind of an uptake on male counsellors coming on board, joining our counselling team oh, more recently. Yeah, so there is there is hope. I think the current generation is seeing this gap and, you know, unconsciously just, just filling, just providing for men who are struggling. Um, yeah. But what in your research kind of of, of of men's mental health, what do you... What did you find to be the most common mental health problems? Um, so I wasn't really looking at their mental health in particular. It was more kind of their views and more general experiences. So um, the majority of them, you know, weren't diagnosed okay. with um, a mental health condition because a lot of them, despite perhaps you know and I'm not a doctor I can't diagnose these things but perhaps experiencing issues with low mood or issues with anxiety um hadn't gone and got a formal diagnosis mm. and I think that's interesting in and of itself um yeah definitely I think there's still a hesitance to go and get a formal diagnosis of something especially when it's to do with a mental health problem, kind of going back to what we were talking about, 
stigma, you know, and, and being in that position where you are confirming a vulnerability inside of yourself. It really does change your perspective, right? Yeah, and I think generally as well, there's maybe a lack of understanding about what happens when you go to the doctor and, and, and seek help yeah, for your mental health. 100%. What happens when, what's going to happen in therapy? Like, are they suddenly going to ask you, you know, about your childhood? When I think of therapy, still in my head, I've got a picture of someone laying side on, on a sofa while a man in a beard writes down notes, you know. Wow. And I think, <laughs> like, like Freud. Yeah. Um, and and I think there yeah there needs to be and and sometimes that's why I, I will speak about my experiences of therapy and counselling because it's almost like and and my experiences of going to the GP and seeking help because you almost need to demystify it because then it's less scary. Yeah, there's that fear of of the unknown. I work as a therapist um, outside of IM, and so I I get this all the time where people just they'll ask me what do you do in the sessions? What do you yeah. do? And I was like, we're just going to have a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to strap you down. Like, one person actually thought that I, I would force feed them medication. I'm like, I don't even work with medication. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So, so there are fears. And I think these fears have been perpetrated by, you know, media and also, you know, just these, the, the fact that it's taboo, I think can perpetrate any kind of myth about it. But it, yeah. I think it helps to be informed to ask, okay, what kind of therapy do you provide? You know, do you work with medicine? Do you not have these questions ready and ask them because you'll never know unless you ask. Exactly. Exactly. And even if, you know, um, there are different modalities within counseling and you you can have a look at them and ask your counselor what they specialize in. Is it CBT? Is it, you know, um, all these different things. So, I think yeah and and I don't think and you can say this better than I I don't think counselors mind being asked questions no no I mean I know counselors love asking questions but we don't mind being asked either yeah (laughs) definitely I I get told that a lot because um even socially you know, when, when I'm outside of the therapy room, they'll be like, don't yeah. mention this in front of her. She's going to ask you a billion questions. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm not in work mode right now. I yeah. won't ask questions. You're in fun mode. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so, but that's a whole other topic in and of itself. Um, but yeah, men's mental health. So if I'm, I'm assuming you're at the tail end of your PhD right now. Yeah, I'm... Um inshallah fairly close to submitting inshallah a couple or a few more months my aim is so inshallah i get married in uh november so inshallah by then oh my my god yes congratulations (laughs) that's amazing um but I want to talk about the PhD. So a couple of months, inshallah, you will make it. Definitely. I can sense a lot of deflection. But do, do you yeah. have, a just as, as a final wrap up, do you have some um, a formed conclusion? Do you know where your, your PhD is going to go? Yes and no. Um, every time I go back to edit and look at my PhD, I find something new in the transcripts. Um, but generally yes I've got kind of a set of recommendations um, 
and a set of yeah a set of recommendations for uh, mental health organizations for practitioners um and you know it's some of them are things like increasing religious literacy amongst non-muslim counselors and psychotherapists um to make muslims more generally feel at ease um mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is, you know, um, for mosques uh, to be uh, in, in how to have conversations about um, mental health, uh, because a lot of the men I spoke to as well spoke about how. Um, so I did my research. Most of my interviews were taking place in 2021, 2022. So we just come out of the majority of lockdown, I think. Wales was still in like the tail end of, of like the final lockdowns and vaccine we were just getting all, we were all just getting vaccinated um so a lot of the men I spoke to were you know lockdown and the pandemic was very fresh and a lot of them were speaking about how they missed going to the mosque on a Friday how that was kind of a release almost and it really helped with their mental health so it was things like um you know how the mosque could be could introduce uh conversations around mental health and i know inspirited minds does things like trains imams and things like that um perhaps offering you know group support sessions um a couple of the men uh thought that they might find that really useful um yeah things like that you're testing me because i i've started a new job so i haven't looked at my phd in a few weeks but i need to so i will now and i'm i'm sure you know i'm sure you have it all figured out you just need to give it some time you know and just like <laughs> but that's really yeah, interesting give it some attention yeah but that is really interesting because yes we do provide like imam trainings and stuff but just you know, um, I think the initiative has to also be shown on on the side of the, the imams, like the mosques and the community centers of having these programs. Yeah. Because I feel like the more programs they are available for, you know, Muslim men specifically, I think it can really create, you know, such a difference because, you know, the mosque is a place where you feel peaceful. It is a place where you feel connected. It, it is a coping mechanism in and of itself to be part of, you know, a community setting. So, definitely yeah, very I interesting can name, i can name quite a few muslim women organizations i can't name any muslim men organizations mm. and i think the organizations for muslim women mainly were set up because of the lack of access for muslim women so in the places where men have access we need to make sure that we're having these important conversations around men's mental health and well-being because it is something that you know like anyone's mental health it does have an effect on the people around you definitely and i always someone once said to me your men your mental illness is not your fault but it is your responsibility and that's always stuck with me and and wanted me to make sure that I'm not negatively affecting those around me of course it happens and you know there are times when I can't get out of bed and I need support from those around me but where possible I try really hard to kind of push myself forward and push myself through and you know you do need a support network and I think that's 
that's sometimes what a lot of Muslim men are lacking is that ability to speak with those around them about what they're feeling and about their mental health. And I, I really love that your mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And it is because essentially it's our mental health. It may have been things that, you know, yeah. and we, I... we were affected externally by other people or by circumstances or situations, but it's for us to look after. Yeah, and I think we, you know, I, I remember having those feelings of when I first got diagnosed of, okay, what have I done wrong? Mm-hmm. And I didn't do anything wrong. And, I, and, and, you know, if you're having trouble with your mental health, you didn't do anything wrong. But it's, it is then my responsibility to make sure, first and foremost, for myself, to improve myself and to make sure I get the help I need and I get the treatment that I need and that my mental well-being is, you know, becoming better. And also my responsibility for those around me to make sure that I'm not taking anything out on them. Mm. And I'm not, you know, having a negative impact on the people around me. That's very inspiring. Um, But you did mention something else there that... (laughs) Yeah, no, very inspiring. I mean, I'm, I'm having a really good time having conversation. And it's nearly like more than an hour. <laughs> but um, but just to wrap up, um, you did mention something that, that yeah. I think is very important, which is that it's speaking up about your emotions, speaking up about how you're feeling is still, you know, a barrier. It's it's a taboo, especially for men. Um, so what do you think we can we can do about that? if anything how much time do you have uh, do you want to sit here for another hour i don't mind i'm really um, having fun <laughs> i think it's creating those spaces for men to feel comfortable speaking about um their mental health and also i think it's about going back to our islamic traditions you know the Prophet Muhammad was someone who was in touch with his emotions, who, you know, spoke about what he was feeling. Um, you know, when he when he received the first revelation, uh, he went to his wife Khadija and, you know, was worried and thought he was going mad because he didn't know what was happening to him. Um, so I think if we and and you know he spoke to her and was open with her so if we use examples like that i think that is really helpful to people because you know he's he's the the utmost role model he's the person that we are looking up to as muslims as the best example um so we should follow his example definitely and i think that's that's a very good reminder. It's, it's often easy to forget that we're living so much into, you know, what what culture tells us, you know, just like you mentioned that blurred line, that it's easy to forget that Islam actually, mm. you know, talks about these things, about having these difficult conversations in an empathetic way, about showing, preferring to show compassion over, you know, judgment or, you know, pointing a finger or, 
or just making that statement like just think you know sometimes just think about what you're saying before you say it is that something you would like to hear if it were you is that something yeah. that you think is a very polite or very courteous thing to say you know it's, it's small things like this that I think can make a huge difference and can open up the conversation and even teach you so much like at, even as a therapist I'm learning new things every day about how how you yeah. can really stretch the support that you're giving people and and change the way you are seeing things you know it's all about perspective so um yeah I think that's that's brilliant advice and I think we, we're we're recording this during mental health awareness week it won't be mental health awareness week when it goes out but yeah. there's loads of resources about how to speak to someone who you think might be struggling with their mental health um yeah. and I think it's really helpful because I think sometimes we can be really well-meaning and um sometimes go in and speak to someone and say, well, when I was going through this, I did this and this will help you. And sometimes people just want you to listen. And, you know, there's a lot around listening skills, yeah. um, how to effectively, yeah, listen to someone, um, what to say, what, what might be the right thing to say. And I think, yeah, take advantage of the resources that are out there, you know, look at I am, look at mind, um, look at rethink mental health look at um myh all these organizations have loads of great resources there's there's always support out there there definitely is but you have to take the first step you have to take the first step to try and access these resources um and finally i think on a final note you are an award-winning community activist i had to say that i had to because you are you do so much for the community Jamalus. i mean subhanallah you know i've i met you at i am you know way back when and it's so good to to reconnect and just just to see all the things that you've accomplished that it's it's possible to do you know it's easy to confine yourself in a box but it's also possible yeah. to do all the beautiful things that you've done so do you have any advice for budding activists out there um that's a good question I think I think this is this is I wasn't expecting to be asked this I don't have um an answer but I think I always wanted to get involved with things to help people and sometimes I wanted to get involved in things for selfish reasons you know to make friends or to do something and I think it really volunteering really takes people out of their comfort zone it is a great way to make friends it is a great way and I've been volunteering I think the first thing I volunteered was when I was 16 and I was volunteering in a charity shop on the weekends and I just love it I, I love speaking to people I love meeting new people I love helping people so I think just find something that you're passionate about now I've kind of moved into mental health but um last year and the year before I was really involved with um a youth club in my area I now run a homework club on a Sunday and that's one thing where um because I'll be moving to get married I'm just like what what the first thing I, I one of the first things I said to my fiance when we were speaking about moving was okay well what kind of volunteering can I do um what can I get involved with so 
yeah, just find, and there's so many opportunities out there, whatever you're interested in. You know, I think I remember before I was looking on, I think it was, I think it's a website called Do It, um, and it's for volunteering. And I think I found like a volunteer opportunity to do with like canals in Birmingham. I was like, not for me, but sure. Like there's, there's, there's stuff everywhere. And, you know, even the smallest things can make a positive difference. So I hope that was an okay answer because I do ramble. No, that was a brilliant answer. I couldn't have said it better myself. There's always something to do (laughs) and you should do it. You know, I think uh, this kind of goes back to what you were saying about those, those mental barriers that you have, but once, once you overcome them, I think it's, it's, it's not difficult to achieve something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to get out of your comfort zone um, and to just, yeah, go for it. And I think that's something I've become much more confident with as I become, as I've become older. I was always scared of like rejection and oh what if someone doesn't like me I'm like well what's the worst someone could say is no okay well then I'll try somewhere else and I think um I I've got a little sister who's this one is 15 and she's looking for her first job mm-hmm. and so a few weekends ago she was like oh I need I, I really want a job and I was like go and go and look um go and ask into you know the local cafe going off in the local hairdressers and she was like oh no I'm scared and I said to her look what's the worst they're gonna say no and then you'll never see them again like it's not it's it's fine and she did it and oh my god I was so proud of her like they didn't have a job Bless for her, her but the fact that she did it was amazing I was like see see like they said no and, and you're fine now and it's okay and yeah I think and it takes a lot to push yourself out of your comfort zone. You have to kind of be in the right headspace. But, you know, amazing things can happen when you just take that step forward. Because it might not work the first time or the second time, but yeah. it will work sometime. There will be a point where yeah. you have pushed yourself out of your comfort zone and it pans out. Yeah. And sometimes it just does work. Yeah. as muslims we say okay that that didn't work okay that's not what allah had planned for me so fine yeah and it's really easy to say that but then practicing it that's where yeah it's really yeah yeah yeah, it gets you can get frustrated um and it, it is difficult to think about it but if you have it in the back of your mind and you keep saying it to yourself then it will come it will come subhanallah i think that's the perfect note to end on um unless you'd like to add anything no alhamdulillah alhamdulillah we did we did it was so interesting it was amazing 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 to talk to you um jamila thank you so so much and best of luck for your phd inshallah i can't wait to see it inshallah be published and reference it wherever i can (laughs) it was great speaking with you thank you Jazakallah khair for joining us on that episode of the mindful muslim podcast please don't forget to like subscribe and share this video if you'd like to get in touch with our podcast team with any guest suggestions topic suggestions or feedback please email us at podcast at inspiritedminds.org.uk 
We hope you benefited from this episode immensely and see you on the next one. Thank you.